I'm smarter than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm faster than you. I'm better than you. Let's can we just speed this up? I don't even want to talk to you. I would rather just punch you in the face. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts? Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be, uh, and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle. And this week, uh, Jack Reacher 2 comes out. So in my, uh, you know, in my purely original thought, I thought... What movie goes with that? So I thought, uh, Jack Reacher won. Uh, so I decided to do that. So I have a return guest. Uh, she's making her like yearly return to the show, apparently. She hasn't been here since last September. Uh, but we have Shannon from the, from the YouTube channel. So you want to be a film nerd. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. Happy to be here. Awesome. So why don't you tell people about, uh, so you want to be a film nerd? Um, it's a web series about film culture and history from like an anti-elitist, from a point of view of being accessible and trying to bring people in and teach people about stuff without being, without scaring people off. Nice. Yeah. So how many episodes do you have up now? Uh, five. And under the, cause the whole, the whole channel is Strucci Movies and that's the one series. I have a couple other video essays up too. And it's only five episodes, but they take a long time to make. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, unlike this this stuff like podcasting, what you do actually takes more than an hour or two to do. So people should definitely yeah. go and check out uh, that YouTube page and check out those episodes. All right. Um, so before we jump into the movie and the psychology and all that, we're talking about Jack Reacher and the stages of morality today. Do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Um, I do. And these are, um, I guess, pretty simple but I think this would make a really interesting triple feature Okay, if someone did this. Um, and it's just going off. Uh, watching Jack Reacher, I haven't seen that many um, Tom Cruise movies, but I really liked Mission Impossible 4 as far as action movies go. And it's very, like comparing it to Jack Reacher, like tonally, it's very, very different. The way it's shot is very different. It's much less uh, realistic, much more over the top. Uh, so it's sort of like the the flip side of it. And also, I think um, if someone has seen Jack Reacher and they're not, they, and they don't know who Werner Herzog is. <laughs> They're doing themselves a disservice, and I would recommend. Uh, I think Grizzly Man would be because it's such yeah. our our into the abyss. They're so sad and so dour compared to you know, <laughs> and it's sort of and, and his other films because his character, watching him on screen, there's so, in, in very very small moments he's such a presence. Like this dude has yeah. seen some stuff. And right. it's like, rather than, he's not play acting. So yeah, that's what I was thinking of as I was watching it. Nice, nice. Great recommendations. All right. Uh, so we'll take a break. I will talk about the stages of morality, and then we'll bring Shannon back to talk about Jack Reacher. Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Peter, the host of Hydrate Level 4. On my show, I invite guests to come on, and we review movies from our childhood and see if they still hold up. I've reviewed movies such as Mrs. Doubtfire, True Romance, Real Genius, The Mighty Ducks Trilogy, and even serious movies like A Time to Kill. We have a lot of fun and reflect back on the year and talk about even the music and other movies that came out around the time of that particular movie's release. So find me weekly at followingfilms.com on the Following Films Podcast Network. 
All right, so time for the psychological section. So as I mentioned, we're talking about moral development, but in particular, we're talking about a certain uh, psychological theory proposed by Lawrence Kohlberg. So this is Lawrence Kohlberg's Stages of Moral Development. So he kind of stood on the shoulders of a previous theorist named Jean Piaget, and Kohlberg began working on this topic while he was still a graduate student at the University of Chicago in 1958, and he would expand upon this theory over the rest of his life. So what this theory says is that moral reasoning, which is, of course, like the basis for all ethical behavior, has these six separate developmental stages – each is kind of better at responding to moral dilemmas than the one before it. So you want to get to number six, right? Of course, as I mentioned, he followed the development of moral judgment um, by Piaget, but just kind of uh, expanded it, especially beyond certain ages. Uh, and he also claimed that logic and morality both developed together through these constructive stages. So he determined that the process of moral development was really concerned with justice and that it actually continued throughout the person's lifetime. You don't like reach this level and then stop. You always keep growing and moving. So these six stages of moral development are grouped into three levels. So there's pre-conventional morality, conventional morality, and post-conventional morality. And we'll get more into that as we move forward. Now, for his studies, he used something that was really commonly used in ethical studies called the Heinz Dilemma, and I'll tell you what that is. So the most well-known version of this dilemma, which Kohlberg used in his studies, is as follows. A woman is near death from a special kind of cancer. There was one drug that the doctors thought might save her. It was a form of radium that a druggist in the same town had recently discovered. The drug was expensive to make, but the druggist was charging 10 times what the drug cost him to produce. He paid $200 for the radium and charged 2000 for a small dose of the drug. The sick woman's husband, Heinz, went to everyone he knew to borrow the money, but he could only get together about 1000 which is half of what it would cost. He told the druggist that his wife was dying and asked him to sell it cheaper or let him pay later. But the druggist said, no, I discovered the drug and I'm going to make money from it. So Heinz got desperate and broke into the man's laboratory to steal the drug for his wife. Should Heinz have broken into the laboratory to steal the drug for his wife, why or why not? Okay. Uh, and it's kind of interesting, like, thinking about that dilemma now when you have all the kind of ugly press with the um, – I can't even remember his name, but the guy who had, like, uh, not created, but his company had created this this drug that could that helps treat AIDS, and he was charging insane amounts for it and keeps promising to lower the price – but never does. So this is something that, you know, actually could kind of happen. So as far as, back to Kohlberg, as far as his theories, there have been critiques uh, of his theory. Uh, some arguments say it emphasizes justice to the exclusion of other moral values like empathy and caring, uh, and that there's such an overlap between these stages that they're more properly regarded as separate domains or that uh, evaluations of the reasons for moral, moral choices are usually done post hoc, like a rationalization after the fact. Um, of basically intuitive decisions. And actually, because of Kohlberg, there's been an entirely new field within psychology that has been created. And Kohlberg is actually the 16th most frequently cited psychologist in introductory psychology textbooks throughout the last century, as well as the 30th most overall. So he's very well thought of and very well respected. So is his theory. So this scale that he created is really about how people justify behaviors. And the stages are not really a method of ranking how moral someone is. So, but there will be a correlation between how someone scores on the scale and how they behave. And the general thought, the general hypothesis is that moral behavior is more responsible, consistent, and predictable from people at higher levels. 
All right, so now we're going to talk about those stages, those six stages. There's two of each in each of those levels, the pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. So pre-conventional. So this is really common in kids, although some adults do exhibit this level of reasoning. People at this level judge morality by its direct consequences. So in stage one, which is obedience and punishment driven, they focus on the direct consequences of their actions on themselves. So for example, an action is morally wrong because I got punished. So the last time I did that, I got sent to my room, so I'm not going to do it again. The worse the punishment is, the more bad the act that that preceded that punishment is seen to be. Stage two, which is self-interest driven, expresses basically the idea of what's in it for me. So correct behavior is defined by whatever whatever is in my best interest, but understood in this really narrow way that doesn't consider my reputation or my relationships with other people. It's the direct direct reaction towards me, not so much what's going to happen down the line. So an example of this is so a, a child is asked by his parents to to clean their room. The child says, okay, what do I get for this? And then the parents give the kid an, an incentive by giving them an allowance or allowing them more TV time or video game time or whatever it is. So they're motivated directly by self-interest to do these chores. Okay, the second level, stages three and four, is conventional. The conventional level of reasoning is really typical of adolescents and some adults. So to reason in this conventional way is you're judging the morality of actions by comparing them to society's views and expectations. You're not doing it because you like think it's right. You're doing it because it's like what's expected of you. It's what's conventional. So in stage three, this is where good intentions are determined by social consensus. So you enter society by conforming to social standards, and we're really receptive to approval or disapproval from others as it does reflect the society's views. You try to be a good person to live up to the expectations, not because you want to be a good person, because you want to be seen as a good person uh, by the way society is reflected, because you have learned that being regarded as good benefits the self. So this stage three reasoning um, judges the morality of an action by evalu evaluating the consequences in terms of person's relationships. So if you go back to pre-conventional, you were getting direct consequences, but now you're seeing a little deeper. You're seeing connections. So you want to look at consequences down the line and in, and in terms of your relationships. So this can include things like respect, gratitude, uh, things we all know, like the golden rule. Um, like I want to be, I'll treat others like I want to be treated. I want to be liked and well thought of. And so not being bad, not doing these bad things will make people like me. So you're conforming to these rules, but for reasons that are pretty much self-serving. So stage four, the second part of the conventional uh, subgroup, and this is about authority and social order obedience. So it's important to obey laws and social conventions because of their importance in maintaining a functioning society. This moral reasoning in stage four is beyond the need for individual approval that's exhibited in stage three. So the central idea often prescribes what is right and wrong. If one person violates a law, perhaps everybody would. And then there's this duty to uphold laws and rules. So not only for yourself, but for other people. So when someone does violate a law, it's morally wrong. So culpability is a really significant factor in this stage as it separates bad from good. Most active members of society actually just remain at stage four, where their morality is really dictated by this outside outside force, this idea of rules and law. And, you know, that is the reason we have rules and laws in societies is to keep kind of to keep people in line and to keep people from doing what we have deemed as a society as morally wrong or bad things. Right. So most people reside here at the at the end of conventional because that's why it's conventional because most people do it. 
Okay, so now we're on to post-conventional, the, the kind of last two stages. So this level is also known as the principled level. And you have this growing realization that we are separate from society despite being a part of it. And our own perspective can take precedence over society's views. After all, not every law in every society is just and right. You know, there, are, there have been many societies that have done pretty terrible things, so you can't just go by those rules and by those laws. So an individual can disobey rules inconsistent with their own principles. So post-conventional moralists tend to live by their own principles, principles that include basic human rights like life, liberty, and justice. Uh, people who exhibit this morality also view rules as useful but changeable because they are. We don't have the same laws now that we did even 50 years ago, let alone 100 years ago. Ideally, rules maintain general social order and protect human rights, but they're not absolutes that have to be obeyed without question. You should always question where those laws come from because, yes, it is agreed upon by the society, but who who is in that society is other people and people have faults. So you have to, you, as a moralist, you have to be, as a post-conventional moralist, you have to be aware of these facts. Because these people tend to elevate their own moral evaluation of a situation over these social conventions like rules and law, their behavior can be, can be confused with those of the pre-conventional level because it's all about them. But there is a deeper moral understanding with people in post-conventional. And actually, some theorists speculated that many people may never reach this kind of abstract moral reasoning. So stage five, which is social contract driven. The world is viewed as holding different opinions, rights, and values. These perspectives all have to be mutually respected as unique to each person or community. Laws are regarded as social contracts rather than these rigid edicts that you must obey. Those of those rules that, that don't promote general warfare should be changed uh, in order to meet the idea of the greatest good for the greatest number of people. This can be achieved through majority decision and compromise. Democratic government is basically based on stage five reasoning. Stage six, which is universal ethical principles driven. It's based on this abstract reasoning using these universal principles. Laws are valid only if they are grounded in justice. And a commitment to justice carries with it an obligation to disobey unjust laws. So even if those laws are on the books, if they are unjust, you not only have to like not obey them to the letter, but you have to disobey them. Legal rights would be unnecessary and social contracts are, are not essential for moral action. Decisions are not reached in a hypothetical manner, but categorically in this absolute way. And this is all derived from the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. So this involves uh, – it's a really difficult process. It involves this individual imagining of what they would do in another's shoes if they believed what the other person imagines to be true. The resulting consensus of that decision is the action taken. In this way, action is never really a means but always an end into itself. The individual acts because it is correct not because you want to avoid punishment or not because it's in your best interest or it's expected or it's legal or it's previously agreed upon by a social contract, um, but because it is right. Now, Kohlberg does insist that stage six exists, but he also found it really difficult to identify individuals who consistently operate at that level. And that's the other important thing is this is a this is a fluid thing. You don't like go to stage six and then stop. You can sometimes go backwards and then forwards and all that kind of stuff. So there are technically further stages. In his empirical studies of individuals throughout their life, Kohlberg observed that some had apparently undergone moral stage regression, uh, which I talked about kind of going back and forth. So this could be resolved either by allowing for more regression or by extending the theory. Kohlberg chose the latter. And then he 
came up with the, the existence of these substages where the emerging stage has not been fully integrated into the personality. So you can have bits of five and six, but you haven't fully integrated that. So uh, in particular, he noted a stage four and a half or four plus, which is this transition from stage four to five that shared characteristics of both. And this makes perfect sense because as I mentioned earlier, most people only get to stage four, but that doesn't mean you don't have moments where you are more moral or more, or your concept of morality is more uh, complex. He even suggested there may be a seventh stage, which is called transcendental morality or morality of cosmic orientation, which actually linked religion with moral reasoning. Colbert did, of course, have difficulties obtaining empirical advice for even a sixth stage, so that led him to emphasize the speculative nature of that seventh stage. All right, and I'll finish this off by going back to Heinz's dilemma. You remember Heinz having to break into the druggist's uh, house and steal the drug, right? So... Which which stage would you be at and what does each stage mean? So stage one, again, is obedience. Heinz should not steal the medicine because he will consequently be put in prison, which means he's a bad person. Or Heinz should steal the medicine because it's only worth $200 and not how much the druggist wanted for it. Heinz had even offered to pay for it and was not stealing anything else. Stage two, self-interest. Heinz should steal the medicine because he'll be happier if he saves his wife, even if he has to serve a prison sentence. Or the opposite side of that, he shouldn't steal the medicine because prison is terrible and he would more like, he would be more likely to have a bad life in a jail cell than even over his wife's death. Stage three is conformity. Heinz should steal the medicine because his wife expects it. He wants to be a good husband. Or Heinz shouldn't steal the drug because stealing is bad and he is not a criminal. He has tried to do everything he can without breaking the law. You can't blame him. Stage four, law and order. Heinz shouldn't steal the medicine because the law prohibits stealing, making it illegal. Or Heinz should steal the drug for his wife, but also take the prescribed punishment for the crime as well as paying the druggist what he is owed. Criminals cannot just run around without regard for the law. Actions have consequences. Stage five, this kind of human rights aspect. He should steal the medicine because everyone has a right to choose life regardless of the law. Or he shouldn't steal the medicine because the scientist has a right to fair compensation. Even if his wife is sick, it does not make his actions correct. Stage six, universal human ethics. Remember, this is like beyond law, beyond anything. Heinz should steal the medicine because saving a human life is more fundamental, is a more fundamental value than the property rights of someone else. Or Heinz should not steal the medicine because others may need the medicine just as badly and their lives are equally significant. So... What this tells us, I love the fact that there's two options for each stage because regardless of your decision in a moral dilemma, you can be in any one of these six stages. And actually, when Shannon and I get to this point in the, in the episode, we'll talk a lot about some of the characters and what stage they're in and what we do, what we know and what we don't know. So that should be really interesting, too. All right. So that's it for the psychological section. Uh, we'll take a little break and then come back with Shannon Strucci of So You Want to Be a Film Nerd to talk about Jack Reacher. Most people know Stanley Kubrick as one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But did you know that later in his career, he was so embarrassed by his first and lowest rated film, Fear and Desire, that he tried to stop it from being seen by the public? Hi, I'm Nate Jones. And I'm Austin Gold. And together we co-host the Best and Worst of the Best podcast, a show where we pit a great director's highest and lowest rated films on IMDb against each other to see what exactly went right and what went oh, oh so wrong. wrong. We've already covered directors like Stanley Kubrick, the Coen brothers, Quentin Tarantino, Steven Spielberg, and many more. Check us out at bwbpod.com and let us know what great director you think had the biggest blunder. 
All right. So now it's time to actually talk about the movie. So let's talk about Jack Reacher. So um, what is your history with this movie? Was this the first time you'd seen it or is this a repeat viewing for you? This is the first time I've seen it. I just watched it. Nice. So So just very generally speaking, what was the experience like? Like, did you did you like the movie? Is it something that turned you off? I mean, it's definitely not something maybe like at least for me, it's not something I sought out when it first came out. So that's something I was like, oh, I definitely got to see that. So what was your experience like? I I had heard of it. And the only reason I wanted to watch it was because Herzog is in it. (laughs) He's playing a villain in a Tom Cruise movie. That's amazing. Um, And he went and I wish he had been in it a little more, although I like the fact that I didn't overuse him. Um, it was, I didn't hate it, but the way it was shot was so boring. There were some very interesting tense scenes, some interesting ideas of uh, ideologically. I didn't like a lot of the stuff in the movie and it was just, it was very like the cinematography and the editing and stuff was just like really standard, serviceable, competent. I never mm-hmm. want to watch a movie if it's just competent. Yeah. This was one of those movies that when it came out, I was like, no interest. I think I was, I go through these phases with Tom Cruise where I'm like, sometimes I love Tom Cruise movies and I seek them out. And sometimes I'm like, you know, I've had it. I'm, it's enough. It's I'm oversaturated. I, I need a break. Right. And I think this was came out during one of those periods where I needed a break. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was recommended this movie uh, by Mike from War Machine versus Warhorse. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's like, y'all, you got to see this. It's fantastic. It's the best. You got to check it out. So it was actually, uh, it was much better than I expect- expected it to be. Like, I know, like, it's it's a very, it's a relatively well-known book series. And I guess the the people that uh, read the books who are really obsessed with the books are really pissed when this movie came out because Tom Cruise is short. And that's, like <laughs> the, I guess, like, Jack Reacher's character is, like, six foot two or something in the books. And, you know, Tom Cruise is, like, what, five, eight? Nine, it's, yeah, you know. it's like my size. Yeah, so uh, so they were all upset. But I actually – and it, it's not the type of movie I usually like. Like like you mm-hmm. talked about, we'll get into it. But ideologically, there's some things that I usually kind of are turned off by. But for some reason, the way it's delivered in this movie, I was entertained by it. I don't know what that mm-hmm. says about me or what it says about <laughs> the movie. But I was but I was definitely entertained. So, And you also brought up the fact that it's kind of – it's very competent. You could tell it's a young director. Uh, for mm-hmm. sure. And this is Christopher McQuarrie, who kind of got his start. Uh, I think he wrote the the screenplay for The Usual Suspects. Uh, and then just uh, last year, he did the Mission Impossible movie, uh, Rogue Nation. So that's kind of, I think, where him and Tom Cruise kind of connected was this movie. And now they're still working together. And you can see like leaps and bounds. He's improved since, since this. I, I do feel like he plays it safe a lot here yeah. but there are things he does well i think um i think the extended car chase is is filmed really well and that's really tough because anytime you have a chase sequence that's longer than like 20 seconds it's very easy i think at least for me to get bored with it and i'm like okay when's the crash coming when's the end coming who mm-hmm. cares but i never felt like that during those kind of tense uh action moments uh the the other thing i wanted to bring up is i i really like the opening where kind of the assassination is first is first you know taking place because I didn't know anything about Jack Reacher. All I know is like kind of the trailers like, okay, he's a badass. So maybe he's doing the assassination. And I love that you don't know until the end of that sequence who who is behind all this. I like that little feint. Like everything is kind of shot from odd angles and from behind. So you kind of can't quite tell who's who. And I love that opening sequence kind of – it shows you everything you need to know for the mystery but tells you nothing. I liked how it's not like this is a – super innovative thing, but the way parts of it played out over the movie, yet that when you first see it, you're, you're not really thinking that critically about certain things like putting the quarter 
in the parking right. meter or all that stuff. But just it's just like, oh, this is. But if you stop and think about it, it's like, yeah, why would someone? Why right. would they? But um, so I thought that was intelligent. That was interesting, and and trying to figure out the motivations behind it. And it, and it was horrific to watch yeah. staring down the scope of a sniper's rifle. That got, that was one of the more emotionally involving moments for me. Looking at the voyeuristic aspect of it without it being like super exploitive or violent or anything. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorite shots in the entire film is how it just stays with that kind of scope view for so mm-hmm. long. So you really feel like it actually reminded me a little bit of the beginning of Halloween where everything is from kind of the killer's perspective. Mm-hmm. And we get that for like the first three or four minutes of the movie where you just see him tracking everyone. You're trying to put together, oh, did he make a mistake there? Like, nope, this was all this was all planned. And I, I really like that as a filmmaker, he had the guts to just stick with that because it is a really long opening sequence. Like I did mm-hmm. – I did an episode on Dog Day Afternoon, and uh, we were talking about how movies don't do that anymore. We don't have these long establishing shots. There's so much of like, just get to the action. You know, you got to grab mm-hmm. your audience, the kind of Wes Craven style of filmmaking, where it's like you have to have a kill in the very beginning or people will, will be bored and they won't pay attention. And yeah, there's kills in the beginning of this, but they really, really take their time here. And, and you mm-hmm. just don't see that anymore. So I like that we had this slow, kind of slow lead up. Um, I think the one of the things that stood out to me as a negative from a direction standpoint is I get that Jack Reacher is, you know, he's the badass, right? He's the guy we need to respect. He's he's our main focus. Um, and you want to keep him a mystery as long as you can. But Tom Cruise is so recognizable that there's all these <laughs> shots like in the beginning of him – of the, the two cops talking about Jack Reacher and they're like, oh, he's done all this. He has all these awards. I don't even know what that one is, you know, building and building and building. Mm-hmm. And they keep showing him walking uh, and they shoot him from behind. But you're like, that's fucking Tom Cruise. Like I know that's Tom Cruise. Like you know, immediately every single person in the theater all – all around the world. Right. Like there's no mystery there. You'd be better off like, you know, showing shots of his hands or shots of him walking, not not like his frame because we know what he looks like. And it's just like for me, it kind of killed, you know, whatever level of kind of build up that was there. That was like, oh, it's Tom Cruise. OK, can we move on? Like we don't need yeah, any more no exposition. Mystique. Right. Tom Cruise is not a mysterious. You know. <laughs> he's Tom Cruise. Like he's always Tom yeah. Cruise in everything. Um, but I, I mean, from a direction standpoint, I think you're right. I think it's, it's a perfectly capable film. I do think you can tell McQuarrie is really, he's most comfortable in the action sequences. I think, uh, scenes with dialogue, at least in this film, like he's, he's more comfortable with kind of the one liners, but not so much with the, you know, shot reverse shot and everything that goes into that. It's just kind of a very static camera and sometimes that can be good it's better than the camera moving all over the place constantly uh but there is a kind of lack of kind of imagination in those sequences to me yeah which is what i care more about usually when i'm watching movies i would rather see something that tries and fails to do something new or weird or interesting versus like oh this is really confident there was one, one shot uh towards the end when uh the cop has Rosamund Pike hostage and like, it's a shot where you see his eye and then mm. like her hair and her arm. Like that was really interesting and really weird, especially like, I, I don't know, like the, the contrast of colors and like, it's a weird, creepy, and there's no other shot in the movie that was like, Oh, that's a weird, I've never seen that before. Right. Um, yeah. It actually, it actually makes me wonder how much kind of studio interference was going on because like, this was yeah. one of his first films and you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure I'm sure a first time director puts on themselves. Like, I, I just don't want to fuck this up. Like I just, 
like if I screw this up, they're never going to let me behind the camera again. Yeah, so yeah, I really yeah. need like, let's just play it safe a little bit. Or maybe he was pushing boundaries and the, the studio was kind of like, you know, this is just a Tom Cruise action movie. Maybe scale it back a bit. Like you're not you're not really there yet, you know, so you never really yeah, know yeah. what kind of goes on be, behind the scenes. But it is I think it's going to be interesting to see uh kind of Macquarie grow as a filmmaker because you know I don't know if you saw Rogue Nation but Rogue Nation is is like super professional like it nothing about it is quote-unquote just competent like it's leaps and bounds past where he is here so it's going to be interesting to see him kind of move forward but it'll be also interesting to see like is he just going to stick with Tom Cruise? Like, cause that's like, seems to be his wheelhouse right now. Right. Like I need that comfort. I mean, there is probably something to that, that there's, you know, your movies are going to get funded if you have Tom Cruise in a lead role. Like that's, yeah, that's like a guarantee. And if he's on your side, then he can get, probably get whatever he wants from the studio. And he, you know, yeah. I'm sure that's a really valuable relationship. I can't imagine doing my first feature and having it like have one of the biggest movie stars. You know, Tom Cruise is getting up there though. Jonathan yeah. Colton has a song about that. Yeah, he's <laughs> he is getting there and still doing his own stunt somehow. I don't I don't know how that's possible. But uh, so let's uh, jump into the acting. So I know we have to talk about Tom Cruise, but what I really want to talk about is not Werner Herzog yet, uh, but is Jai <laughs> Courtney because I hate Jai Courtney. Like I think he is one of the worst actors working. Like I think he's terrible. Um, so this is something I respect this movie for. They made him watchable. Like they made him actually kind of cool. And granted, there's not a lot of talking. Uh, and anytime he speaks, the quality of the film kind of dips. Uh, but that beginning (laughs) sequence with him, like it really works. Like I forgot it was him. And I was like, oh, this guy's terrifying. Like this guy's scary. And this guy's kind of, kind of cool and kind of edgy. And then you realize later, like, oh yeah, it's Jai Courtney. But I never thought I'd see a movie where I would appreciate his performance you know you see things like the terminator movie did like he was just recently in suicide squad like he has this amazing ability to make bad movies even worse and it's like and that's actually impressive at some level like sometimes a movie is so bad you can't even affect it but he finds a way Uh, but i think mccory kind of knew what he was working with here he knows he's an imposing figure like physic physicality wise he's really good here um and just kind of limit what he has to do so that was probably the most impressive thing to me uh about this movie more than anything else i think the scene where he with him one of the ones that was most affecting to me is where he's talking to sandy right she's walking down the street and he and it's like he's very uh like amicable and nice and stuff. Yeah. It's like, oh, this dude's a sociopath, and it's creepy yep. to me. It's not, but it's not. That's not because of his acting. It's not a challenging <laughs> uh, scene. He, he was he was fine. He didn't like mess it up. But just the idea of oh, he's, they're just talking, and she's like, oh, I don't know. And the fact that you know she's about to, something bad's about to happen right. to her. Yeah, I think like you said, it's less about his acting and more about setup. Is that we know as an audience all the things he's done and how terrible he yeah. is. So for him to be so friendly and smiling and flirtatious and charming, you're like, oh no, I don't know yes, what's going to happen, but it's not good. Like yeah. something awful is about to happen. R.I.P. Uh, Sandy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so what did you think of Tom Cruise in the title role here as Jack Reacher? Um, he was fine. He was good. I uh, there was no scene that really stood out to me. Maybe a couple were a little funnier or like little moments, um, like where and this is a scene I might want, we'll I'll probably talk about with you later. But where he's at the bus stop and the guy gives him his hat, and then uh, <laughs> when he's hiding and the yes. guy's like reacting to all the cars going by, <laughs> freaking out, and Tom Cruise is just like ah, and he shrugs like that kind of stuff is yeah. funny. But there's only a couple very small moments like that. Otherwise, he's just like beating people up or being like I, um, I'm Tom Cruise, you know. Which is not, it's, it's again, it's it's confidence 
It's fine. But I remember I, I've only seen him in a few movies, but I remember him in Magnolia. He's hmm. a very emotional. Stri- very different kind of, role for him. Yeah. To me, that's like, well, that's so much more acting. Required oh, yeah. Yeah. Than to walk in, walk around and be like, dude, you know, asking questions of people and beating people up. You know? Right. I think like there's there's a difference between, you know, powerful acting like you see in Magnolia and kind of superstar acting like you see here. Like yeah. there's. There's a certain skill to that. It's different. It's a different kind of skill. But I think if you put, you know, someone who was not a known commodity in this role, it might not work at all. Like there's a certain way he carries himself and a certain cool that Tom Cruise has had since Risky Business and Top Gun that have just carried him throughout his career. So even when he says some pretty hateful, horrible things, like you're still kind of like – I'm still kind of like entertained. I'm still kind of like, uh, OK, I'll, I'll take this from you. But if someone else said that, like you'd be like, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I like where this is headed. Uh, but because it's Tom Cruise, I think there's so much of that kind of you just accept it because he's been you know in the limelight for his whole career. You're like that's Tom Cruise. Everybody knows Tom Cruise. So I think he carries off those lines better than most would. But yeah, like I like Tom Cruise in this movie. Like it's not it's not a tour de force performance. It's not something that's gonna, you know, attract awards attention by uh by any stretch of the imagination. But it is also something that only a handful of people I think can pull off. Uh and I and I think he pulled it off, even when being kind of a not likable character for most of the film. Like he doesn't treat anybody particularly well. You know, like maybe up until the end with the Rosamund Pike character, like he starts to kind of be more bonded to her. But everyone else in the movie is just like, I'm smarter than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm faster than you. I'm better than you. Let's can we just speed this up? I don't even want to talk to you. I would rather just punch you in the face. Can we can we move forward? Which I think like kind of harkens back to that kind of like 1980s action uh, movie. Like if you look at a movie like Roadhouse, like there's there's a little bit of that in Patrick Swayze's character where he's just like. You know, it's time to not be nice now. Can we just can we just move on? And I think we've for better or worse, I don't know which, but I think that doesn't really exist anymore in most films. We don't have those types mm. of characters because I think we've gotten more nuanced in what we expect out of film characters. Uh, so briefly, I brought up uh, Rosamund Pike. Uh, we actually just recently did an episode on Gone Girl. So what did you think of her performance here? I was like I had seen this, I think, before I saw Gone Girl. Um, had no idea who she was, and I was like, "Oh, she was pretty good." And then I saw Gone Girl, and then rewatched this, and it, like blew my mind that it was her. I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> she's like one of those actresses who's kind of like been around and done things here and there." And then she just kind of exploded last year with Gone Girl. And now, like every time you see her, you're like immediately like, "Oh god, it's amazing, Amy!" Like <laughs> you have that connection right away. Well, I first saw her in The World's End, so that's what I think of. Oh yeah, that's, yeah. that's when I see her. True. Um, she was good, I think. Some of the direction might have been weird. There were definitely scenes where it was like more where she was scared or like, but then there were sometimes she just sort of looked kind of confused or kind of, you know, like sort of just like looking. Um, but I, I liked her that, yeah, the scene where he's on the phone with her and he's like, you can only trust one of these, you know, and she's like, looks like it was believable. And I felt, felt for her. Right. Uh, and there were parts too. I don't know if it was intentional. Where it was like, oh, is she on his side? And like, a, her is it? But um, yeah, yeah, she was good too. Yeah, I think it, better than Jai Courtney. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, high praise. Um, yeah, I mean, it would have been really easy, I think, because in a lot of ways, like as I watched this movie, he reminded me of like a gruff American version of James Bond. You know, like everything he does works. Mm-hmm. There's always like the pretty girl by his side. But I like the fact that in this, like, there's definitely romantic tension. But the film is not a romance, and it very easily yeah, could have I gone that route. That too. You know, of course, they had moments of like, 
you know, kind of nudity and distraction and all that going on. But it was never so in your face that it was like, oh, okay, so when are they going to make out? Like, you know, it's coming and it never happens. And I like that. So you, I think all the way up until the very end, like I think Robert Duvall has some line like, oh God, just get her number, move on with it. You know, and it's (laughs) never this like drastic romantic moment that you would have in a James Bond type movie. And I liked, I liked that. And a lot of it's her performance, some of it's the writing, but she holds her own with Tom Mm -hmm. Cruise in those scenes. There's, there's not really a moment in the film, maybe except for the shootout near the end where you feel like she's overmatched. Um, but when it comes to like intelligence and thinking on her feet, like she's right on par with him, which I think is the reason why his character kind of sticks with this as long as he does. I think I think he's intrigued by her because no one really keeps up with him. So I like that, you know, the female character in this film is the one that the only one that really keeps up with Jack Reacher. Yeah, I appreciate that, too. And I and I did mention, but yeah, I was happy that they didn't have to have sex or be in love for him to want to help her or save her. And right. she didn't like, I feel like that might've weakened her character. It's like, Oh, he's so handsome. I have to, blah, you know, right. Whether it's, it's a more natural, I guess, realistic thing of just having that tension like you do with people, but not, but the focus of it is I need to figure out if this man is innocent or not. Right. Yeah. I mean, really going- yeah. Her whole focus, the whole movie is like, I have to do what's right. Like, it's not yeah. about like, it's not even necessarily about this whole idea of, well, he's my he's my client, so I have to defend him. It's about I have to find out the truth and I have to find out what's right. And I like – and I'm sure we'll talk about this later with the script, but I like that I think in a lot of ways at the beginning of the film, he helps her along with this, with this whole process of talking to the victims and kind of understanding like, OK, know that if your client is guilty, this is who he affected. Um, which in a lot of ways flies in the face of a character like a Jack Reacher. Like you would never see James Bond doing something like that. Like it's all about the mission. It's all about the end justifying the means. Whereas to him, I think the means are really important. Like why he's doing these things are important. Mm -hmm. Um, So let's talk about your favorite. We finally, we're finally here. So you watched this movie because (laughs) of Werner Herzog, um, who has probably the the greatest voice uh, working today. Like I just, the man could, the man could narrate anything. He could read the phone book. And I and I would listen. And it's it's interesting because it's this like you said, his character in this, you can tell he's seen some shit. But it's also there's this edge of and I think it's just because of my connection with Werner Hartzog. There's this edge of comedy. It's you're like you're always on the edge of laughing and you're not sure why. It's not even that he's saying anything ridiculous, but everything is so intense and so over the top that you just like you want to laugh, maybe because it's uncomfortable for things to be mm-hmm. that intense. Uh, but Werner Hartzog, you know, plays plays a villain here. And I, I remember when I first saw it, I didn't know he was in it. And then he just oh, showed up nice. and I was like, oh, my That'd God. Be amazing. <laughs> I was I'm like, gonna, what yeah, is I'm happening? <laughs> It's like he was from a different movie. Yes. Everyone else is very – and, and they're like – his almost his like color palette is different because he's he's so pale and he has the mm-hmm. blue, white eye. Yeah. Everyone else is very like dark, um, like dark hair and features and stuff. Uh, I love – I don't – I just loved his presence yeah. in the film because it's – everyone else, like I said, is very like almost Jason Bourne-y kind of <laughs> like oh, – and then he's just like I it chewed my fingers off and <laughs> – uh, and I wanted to see, I, I don't know if he would have lost effect if he had been in it more, if he'd had a bigger part, right? Like if there had been more emotional resonance to the character. And I like the fact that, and there, there was like a, a, I was like, Tom Cruise has no mystique. Bernard Herzog has all of the mystique in the world. <laughs> and he just said weird stuff. We just do what, what did he say? His, his motive. Did you do it for money? No, just, it was just like this weird, almost supernatural thing. Right. And then he just shoots him. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I mean, that's funny. Too. That's cool. But yeah, I don't know. I loved watching him. 
And, and, it, and he has, and part of it too, is that I know that he's looked down the barrel of a gun. He's had a gun and threatened, right. you know, and he's, he was shot during an interview and it's really, that whole story is really funny and stuff like that. Um, versus people who see compared to him seem to be play acting. Right. Which is very, very strange. He's like from a different planet. He really is. Yeah. yeah. But I think you're right. I think like I get the idea of like wanting more because he's so like he just draws you in. But I do think if you have like two or three more scenes with him, it switches it switches past that borderline into comedy and you don't take yeah. it seriously anymore. I mean, it's already like the man has like chewed off his fingers and is <laughs> making other people do the same if they want to live. I mean, it's like yeah. way over the top. So if you have even more than that, like I think I think it wears on the viewer, like especially if you're not if you don't walk in like I love Werner Herzog. I just want to hear him talk. If you're like, who's like this foreign guy with right, a weird eye. Like, right. Why is he? Oh. Eating fingers, I don't understand. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, I think he's really needed here because the other villains um, are either villains in the sense that like, oh, they're other lawyers and they get in the way, or they're dirty cops, or they're Jai Courtney who always sucks, and you just mm-hmm. like, and it, there's no resonance there, right? So you need that kind of shadowy figure. That person, you know, literally and in this movie, literally in the shadows, kind of pulling the puppet strings. And I and you need that here. But I think if you have any more of that, that it's then it's too much. So I think the script had the perfect amount for that character. What, what I did want was a scene where he tried to make Tom Cruise chew his fingers off, or some <laughs> some or some more. So like uh, to put Tom Cruise's character in a really stressful situation right. or to um, or to have some kind of ideological conflict, which they didn't really uh I guess that's just not the movie that this is. Right. Because Tom Cruise wins because he's cool and good and Tom Cruise wins. Right. Rather than, I, you know, Bernard Herzog pointing a gun at him and be like, bite your finger off and he starts biting it and he's like, finally someone who can, you know, that kind of, I would have liked that. <laughs> right. We're not so different, you and I, kind of weird. <laughs> I think it's actually. A, there is some of that in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Neither of us, like, you know. I think it's actually very similar to another movie we covered in that way, which is The Equalizer uh, with Denzel Washington, who like and just like uh, Tom Cruise here and Jack Reacher, like kind of never really makes a misstep other than thinking like, ah, he's probably guilty. Like that's his biggest mistake in the movie. Like basically everyone else, they would just fucking listen to me. If they would leave town when I told them to, they would be fine. But no, like they just got to do oh, yeah, their own Sandy thing. That's right. If Sandy leaves town, she doesn't get literally punched to death. Like it's <laughs> like, which uh, that scene also is like uh, weirdly enjoyable because it's so comic booky, so over the top. Like someone dying from one punch. Like it's like I mean, I guess it's Did possible. He, like he suffocated her. He, was he just like holding her? I there? think he was just <laughs> holding her there. Yeah, it was. It was I very. It's weird. Yeah, it's very odd. Yeah. But I think we have those types of movies and they really appeal to kind of general audiences when your protagonist, like there's no, there's not a lot of gray area. It's like, okay, I know who I'm supposed to root for. I know who the bad guy is. Good. The good guy didn't make any mistakes. We should all listen to the good guy and everything will be fine. And I think there's, there's an enjoyable simplicity in that. But I think there's also enjoyment to be gained from a movie with more gray area. Like I think it's – I think Jack Reacher is fun and I really enjoy it. But it's not a movie probably that in 30 years I'm going to be like, you know what you need to see from this era is Jack Reacher. Like that's that's never going to come out of anyone's mouth. You know, I think the it, movies with the gray area are the ones that will resonate. Or even with like uh, – probably my favorite American action movie is Die Hard. 
And Die Hard isn't a movie with a lot of gray area, but both him and Hans Gruber are put through so put through the ringer. Right. Absolutely. And you see the main character be way more vulnerable, like with his wife and with his his own injuries. Mm -hmm. I I would I would say that's a very morally simplistic movie. There's not a lot of but there's so much more that uh, the emotional bandwidth of it. Right. And it's still full of action. But also McLean is not an infallible. Right. You know, he's wrong with his wife and he's wrong. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's just more the thing that I'm more into is seeing people suffer more on screen <laughs> for my enjoyment. <laughs> Interesting. All right. I think there's something there, but we're just going to move on. <laughs> um, the only other person I want to bring up, I mean, it's a great cast overall. I mean, you've got Richard Jenkins, you've got David o- Oyelowo, um, uh, and the one person we haven't talked about, really, who I really enjoyed in this movie was Robert Duvall. Like, it, it was so weird to see him there because I think it's always weird to see, like, these really accomplished, award-winning actors in these, like – in these movies like Jack Reacher that are not really probably going to be remembered forever, but you're like, Robert Duvall, like, what are you doing slumming it here? Like all of a sudden he just shows up <laughs> in like act three and a half, like near the end of the movie. And you're like, what, what you like this role could literally be played by anybody. Like find any, you know, any country country dude could play this any role. Character actor. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I love that Robert Duvall was like, I'll do that. And he's like, He's the character that I found like myself wanting more of. Like I would watch a whole movie based on this guy. Like he was so entertaining to me. Like I he he was had... so over the top. He too. He and Werner Herzog were yep. from two different planets. For because he was so over the top and goofy. And then Herzog is just like I chewed my fingers off. <laughs> yes, you know, know. versus like ah, 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 ah ha 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 driving the tractor or not right. tractor the cat whatever yeah, yeah yeah exactly and i loved him in the in the kind of action sequence at the end with tom cruise like there were little bits of comedy without them being kind of like laugh out loud funny and ruining the kind of mood of that moment but just enough to like lighten it for for the audience and i just i just loved duvall like and i liked uh him and cruise together that scene where he's like proving himself by by shooting the target like i loved their interactions there like it was i think it was the one moment in the movie where Jack Reacher felt like a little bit more of a real character and not just a caricature of like everything I do is perfect. Like he's, he's a little thrown off his game by Duvall in in these scenes. And I think, and I actually would have preferred a little bit more of that, a little bit more of him being thrown off his game. I think it, it makes him more relatable and it makes you root for him just a little more. Yeah. I did like that. He, something I thought was funny is that he has that one change of clothes or whatever. And he has to keep washing it in the sink. I was like, why are you wearing the sink? It's, that's a whiz. Like, why didn't she just buy him new clothes at Goodwill? Like, what's happening? Right. <laughs> but it's just funny that he's like, oh, "It's just all I have." It's like, okay, and we just don't question it. Yeah, and he, just, he probably smells terrible. Yeah, so. <laughs> we don't think washing your clothes in the sink does the job. That's not. That's not enough. <laughs> all right, not enough for me. <laughs> Man, you have high standards. All right, so let's move on to the script. Um, so I think. The most impressive part of the script to me is the way everything comes together at the end. Like, I love the sequence where we kind of are explained. And I usually hate this type of thing, like with all the, you know, like, well, let's just explain everything that happened. You know, let's let's go step by step and we'll show you stupid audience what happened. But I love that sequence. And I like that it's overlaid with what's actually happening. You know, and we get to kind of see that first scene over again with the Mm -hmm. perspective of why it's happening. And I think that those scenes like editing wise and direction wise are just kind of expertly done. And it was like kind of an aha moment as you're watching it, which is really rare for me. Like usually like, okay, that's the mystery. Okay. I guess we solved it. But I I remember when I watched (laughs) it, I was like, wow. Okay. Like, yeah, this all actually makes sense. And the whole idea of like, 
you know, and we actually see him take his time with that second shot in the beginning, but we have no idea why. And it doesn't even register because we're just so focused on that scope shot. But I like that mm-hmm. they explain at the end, like, this is why that, that's, that's why there's this gap in shots and why all these other people died is because there was one, but we had to distract you from everything. And I really liked that kind of explanation. Yeah. I like it when something that just seems, it seems pretty simple, but in fact it was so layered with all the different character information as it would be if you were like out walking, like everyone has their own story and whatever. But it was also character of not just like this person was a nanny, but like, Oh, that's why he had the flowers. That's why she was carrying this. That's why the quarter was put in the thing. That's why it hit the weird colored, the drinks, um, yeah, I, I, I appreciated how much thought and time was spent on that. And it is, it is cut very well to where you, like I said, it seems very natural, but then as you go back through, it's like, wait, this doesn't make sense. I didn't even think about that. I didn't think about that. Right. Yeah. And I think there's the one thing that always catches my eye when I watch it now is, you know, there's the scene with the, the two kind of adulterers going to meet each other and the woman is walking up to the guy who's sitting on the bench and he gets shot and you see her just stop. And when I first yeah, I wondered watched, about it. Yeah, yeah. When you first watch it, you're like, I mean, I guess she's like shocked, and you, you never know what you're going to do in that situation. But I love that that's explained that she is just seeing her her lover be shot in the head, and she doesn't know what to do or where to move, and that ends up being kind of her her death sentence. You know, so I love that every little movement in that sequence is actually explained. It makes me wonder how much work went into that first original shot like how tightly choreographed that actually is when it feels just mm-hmm. natural. It just feels like people walking down the street and then running away and there's gunshots seems like very simple, but you realize as you watch the movie and you get to the end that like, Oh, this is anything but simple. Like every single step mm-hmm. of that sequence was choreographed to within an inch of its life, which, which makes it even more impressive. I, mean, I like the first scene anyway, but when you think about everything that went into it, it's like, Oh my God. Like I think as viewers, sometimes we forget how much work goes into the simplest shot. When it when it comes mm-hmm. to film, like, oh, yeah, you just it's a conversation, whatever. But like real work goes into this. And I like that you get to oh, yeah, see I that. Just finished a short, I'm a filmmaker, too. And I just finished a short film with my friend on a tight deadline. Hmm. And yeah, a lot of work goes into the three seconds of a uh, five minute film. Spend hours and hours and hours. Right. But it's worth it. But no, and, and there's a lot of stuff we were talking obsessing over. It's like, well, people even know. Will people even care? It's like, well, we care. We need to, you know. Right. So, which is why I'm so hard on people. But I'm like, this this is so boring. Why didn't you put more effort? I, I know it's hard, but like you you know. Right. I think yeah. I can get more personally when I <laughs> when I have a better understanding of how Right. Like I know what it takes, so work harder. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything else about the screenplay that, that stuck out to you? Was it whether good or bad? Um I like some of the one liners more than others. I don't remember them. And I don't know if the, and and yeah, the whole the movie had a weird ideology. I think. Or did you want to get into that later? Yeah, no, we can talk about it now. Like, what do you, what do you think about that? Like, I, I think the first time it kind of struck me was when he's talking to Sandy. Mind if I share your table? I'm Sandy. So was I. Last week, on a beach in Florida. What's your name? Jimmy Reese. You don't look like a Jimmy. What do I look like? I don't know. But not a Jimmy. So you're new in town? Usually. It's kind of loud in here. Do you want to maybe go someplace quieter? I have a car. You're old enough to drive? I'm old enough to do a lot of things. I'm on a budget, Sandy. What? 
I can't afford you. I'm not a hooker. Oh, then I really can't afford you. Seriously, I work at the auto parts store. What I mean is the cheapest woman tends to be the one you pay for. I am not a hooker. Well, a hooker get the joke. What's this? He called me a whore. Is that true? Nobody said whore. She inferred hooker. I meant slut. Hey, that's our sister. She a good kisser? Hey, outside. Pay your check first. I'll pay later. You won't be able to. You think? All the time. You should try it. It's a great joke, but I'm gonna beat your ass. Do you want to do that here or outside? Outside. Stay here, Sandy. I don't mind the sight of blood. But it means you're not pregnant anyway. And I, it's and you sort of you realize it's because he realizes he's, he's being set up. But she's just coming on to him, and he's like, Ugh, "Filthy slut, why are you?" And I'm like, "Oh, what are you doing? That's gross." Or just like he's a good dude because at the end, a man is abusing a woman, and he wants he's mad when women get abused. It's like, oh, that's like the lowest level, you know. Or there's a certain. Uh, I've been watching uh, SVU lately. Like, hate watching it. And, like, the amount of disgust for defense lawyers and the amount of, like, people don't get, And it was sort of, there was a little bit of that in this. Like, yeah. you want to defend someone even though he's bad? Oh, you're, t- it's like, yeah, that's how the legal that's system job. works. Everyone should, yeah. yeah, that's her job. She's not naive for wanting to get to the, you know, uh, this man is evil. You need to understand what he did. What? It doesn't, like, so little things. Not that it, it didn't have, like, a disgusting or disturbing ideology. I wasn't, like, repulsed by this movie. But there are a lot of, and, of course, at the end. Judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah, uh, it makes sense, but it's also like I don't like that, you know. And that's just my own personal belief, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes to to the point of kind of personal ideology versus the movie's ideology, right? Like it's not something that's reprehensible at its core, but doesn't mesh with what you would want, right? As we also profess, the bit where he's talking to the the gun, the shooting range owner. And he's like, yes, yeah, stupid soccer moms. They have pools and bleach that kill kids, <laughs> and they think your guns are scary. It's like, well, yeah, dude, we got a gun problem. He's like, what? It was a very, very – it's like, oh, that's a really pro-gun scene. Yeah. It's like it was, really, really over the I, top. But to defend that, like if you go and talk to someone who owns a gun range – that's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what you're going to get, right? I mean, that's that's the type of person that you're going to come in contact with. Uh, but that scene, that scene in the bar uh, with Sandy, like I just – I can't help it. It makes me laugh every time I watch it. Uh, there's something about it and I and I don't know how much of it is because it's Tom Cruise and I just kind of accept <laughs> it and how much is because he knows it's a setup and how much yeah. of it is because like regardless of whether it's like – sexist slash misogynist like there is some fun wordplay that goes in that goes into the writing of that scene and it goes over everyone's head like all these guys who are supposedly mm-hmm. her brothers and i also like the whole setup of that of that fight sequence of him saying like it's five on one like no actually it's three on three on three on one let me let me prove it to you and i love the way that shot and i love that they had the guts to a lot of movies with action stars who are shorter they're gonna cast uh enemies who are shorter too and i love that they didn't do that like he's legitimately five inches shorter than anyone else on the screen and i was like struck by that because you never see that like this goes back to like to like casablanca where you would have like either the woman not wear heels or like walk in a trench 
So they were the same height as the male actors. Like that's just that kind of power structure has always been there. So I love that this movie was like, no, we're just it's Tom Cruise. We're just going to let him fight it out. And I love the way that was shot. How much how Tom Cruise feels about that if he pushed for that? Because I would assume he would have been like, no. So maybe he doesn't. He's like, no, let me just be me and not stand on an Apple box, not stand on, you know, to be the same height as these like 20 somethings I'm about to beat up. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think I think like. The more, and this is all me filling in stuff that I don't necessarily know to be true, right? Like the idea that if Tom Cruise didn't want to be seen as short, he would not have filmed this. I mean, he would have pulled the like Kevin Costner trick of all like, oh, bring all those posters back. It looks like I'm balding. Can't have that. Like it's all about (laughs) protecting your image, right? And in a latest uh, Mission Impossible movie, it's really not his movie. The movie is about, about the female action hero. And you know that doesn't happen unless Tom Cruise is okay with it. Because he is the bankable mm-hmm. star. So I kind of fill in the stuff. And I'm starting to like Tom Cruise as a person a lot more that he's like willing. I don't know I'm, I'm not going to go that far. I mean, me. he seems at least willing to, if not openly make fun of himself, at least be aware of what people are saying. And not mm-hmm. in this way of like, well, I can't let them say that. I have to protect protect my brand. You know, because it'd be very easy for him to do that in those two circumstances. And I like that that they didn't do that. So it's different for most uh, most male action stars. You're not going to see that. So, um, so let's move forward to the production value. So, what stands out? Uh, was there an action sequence in particular that stood out to you as far as high production value? I liked um, the scene in the house with the meth heads. Mm-hmm. The, oh the yeah, the kind of close quarters. Of, yeah, that was my favorite action fight sequence in the whole movie, and it did, didn't. I'm sure that that didn't cost a lot. That wasn't super complicated, the film, but it was just the absolute, their confused incompetence and then his just brutality was yeah. really striking, especially when he start. it went a little over the top for me when he grabs the one dude's head and is just slamming it into the other dude and it's like, oh man. I think that was my really favorite part of that sequence. I think we're coming slamming, at this like, from different angles. <laughs> and it's one thing to like break someone's hand to try to get information or together yeah, tell it. The because most of it, like when he fought the kids in the well, it it makes sense narratively, but when he fought the kids at the bar, he wasn't that like, like taking one of their skulls and just slamming it over and over and over and over again. It was very much, it was like a very, like an act of dominance, like a, like a, that was how I read that, like a really over the top, that whole sequence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I the thing I appreciated most about that sequence is the very beginning of it when they kind of attack him in the bathroom, and I. I'm always impressed kind of whether you're talking about fight sequences or whether you're talking about acting when you limit what you're able to do and still are able to put a scene together that works. Like there is a very limited amount of space and I think he uses – I think McQuarrie uses every inch – of space in that in that bathroom without it seeming yeah. i mean it does seem awkward because there's less space but not awkward in a way where you feel like the actors are really struggling or the director is really struggling like it feels like if you were in this kind of close quarters and there's weapons involved all, and it's funny but all these things could actually happen it's not yeah. to the point of slapstick where you're like i can't even watch this anymore like they just keep running into each other like they keep hitting each other with the oh, yeah, oh, yeah it, it becomes oh. like three three stooges yeah exactly um yeah, and they got the jump on him too. So there's that yeah. element of he's vulnerable, and it's undercutting your expectations. Like, oh no, they're gonna like kidnap him or something. It's like, no, they're idiots. Well, they're, they're dumb. They're gonna get stuck on each other. <laughs> yeah, even though they, they, it was luck that they got the jump on him. So that whole that whole, is one of my favorite sequences in the movie. 
That yeah. Really I also like the end of the sequence. Like, yeah, it does get a little brutal and a little over the top, but that, that little moment of kind of levity where he kind of tells him like, did I steal your car? And he's like, <laughs> nope, you go ahead have a good time. Like I really liked, right, I like that moment. It, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which was a very real reaction. Like you could kind of put yourself in the shoes of that guy and just be like, yep, you can have my car, sir. I have no interest in ever seeing you again. Like I'll, I'll find a way to get a new car. I don't, I don't need this at all. Um, one thing I like, and I always appreciate this about movies, is that I feel like the action sequences build on one another. Like, I think if you have the final action sequence early in the film, everything else is a disappointment. Like, you have the, you know, the the car going through and the, the bullets, and you've got Robert Duvall protecting him, and, you know, these blind shots around corners. I mean, it is really over the top. It is really crazy. So I think very smartly they kind of plan this out, where the first fight, you have this kind of hand-to-hand combat, and then the second fight, you have this kind of close quarters and weapons are involved, and then the third fight, you really pull out all the stops. But I never felt like during that sequence, like I just saw recently, I just saw the new Magnificent Seven. And one of my big complaints about Mm -hmm. the movie is the last action sequence, I swear to God, is 45 minutes long. It's probably not. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably eight minutes long, but it feels like, oh, my God, like there weren't that many bullets around in the old West. Like, this is, <laughs> are we done yet? And I never felt like that mm-hmm. during this. Like, and I like the fact that we have the shots of like him again, being vulnerable because Duvall isn't like kind of on his game quite as much as he should be. So the bullets are taking out the windows and going through, you know, the lawyer's paperwork. And I like a lot of the, like the uses of light there and him just like, uh, I am screwed. If, if something doesn't like change. Leaning back. Right. Oh, yeah. Backwards in the chair. Yeah, it was it was a nice little and and I think that was actually shot particularly well. Like you have a lot of shots of outside of what's happening to the car and then the shots inside of him, you know, essentially just laying back and getting as small as he can. And I I I think you could see a little bit that Macquarie is like, okay, this is where he's comfortable. Like we talked about, like with these action sequences, he knows what he's doing. He's like, finally, we're done talking. We can, we can shoot people. We can get into this action sequence and, and I can have a little bit of fun. Um, what did you think of that part near the end where he kind of turns around the corner uh, and shoots, I, I guess not blindly, but ends up taking out one of our villains with our female character kind of standing right there where, kind of anything could have happened. What do you think that says about the character? What did you think of it when you saw it? Well, I guess it says he can, he's a good shot. He's yeah. great. He's jolly. He doesn't even need to look for a second. <laughs> I like that she was kind of, um, as she was, so she was sort of just stunned and sitting mm-hmm. there. And at first I thought, oh, is there like a bomb? Is there something mm. else? What is it? But she was just like, ah, oh, and she hands on the gun and it's sort of like a comical, like, yeah, here you go. <laughs> yeah, I don't want this. Bit, I guess. Yeah. Like how, how traumatizing would it be someone that you know, like this cop, Right. Um, that just almost killed you. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he was pretty cavalier about it, but I guess he knew what he was doing because he's Jack Reacher. You know? <laughs> I think when I first saw it, because they, very cleverly again, and a lot of movies do this, and it's getting to the point where it's a little overused, but there's the shot, and you don't see behind her. You just show like kind of her head and her upper torso. And you see her gasp. And for a second, I thought Mm -hmm. he shot her. And it was like, oh, this just got really dark. Uh, This just got really messed up. Um, But of course, like it ends up the person behind her got shot. And she was just shocked, as one would be if a bullet goes by your body. I think shock is the, the, (laughs) you know, the correct reaction. But I did like the way that was shot. I liked liked that for a half second, even though he's never screwed up anything in the entire two-hour runtime, for half a second, we're kind of like, oh, did this just... Oh, no, we're okay. And we've still got, you know, Werner Herzog in the background saying creepy things, like, even when he's about to die. Like, Like, (laughs) 
I kept having that moment as as Bernard Herzog saying all that. I was like, is she on Herzog's side? Was this a setup? Was that no? Right. Which it would, none of that it would have had to have been that. But I was like, my own and within my own head, it's like, oh, the tension is up. And it's like, pop, no. Yeah. It's like okay. Absolutely. I, I really one thing we didn't talk about. I really liked at the beginning, right before the car chase, where he pulls into the the motel. That whole the way the tension escalates there because mm. it's like you're sitting there thinking he has to leave, and you actually see his hand shake when yeah. he's like changing gears. Uh, that was and as the cop makes eye contact, and then it's like then it starts cutting way faster. That was one of my favorite sequences in the movie, and more creative editing than just like a lot of it. Yeah, I think that's why that sequence works. Like if it's just if it's just go 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 a thousand miles an hour for that entire sequence, it's like who cares? But you have that moment, and then you have the moment where he can't get the car started. You know, and it kind of builds that tension, which is, of course, an old trope, but it still works like that. I, I don't think that'll ever get old like that. That has been in movies since we had cars in movies like that's just, oh, we can't get the car started. Like, oh, the bad guys are coming. Hurry up. I prefer that to the woman is outside of her apartment and she can't get her key in. I have uh, never struggled that hard to get my key in ever. And like and if I was every every character in movies has like 1700 keys on their keychain. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. just what are you doing? Yeah. Absolutely. That's a much worse cliche to me than the car won't start. Because I know, you know, cars don't start. It's true. Yeah. It happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of favorite scenes, so the only one we haven't really talked about, I mean, we we talked about the kind of uh, I'm not a hooker scene, which I love and you hate, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the scene that we didn't talk about is when Reacher first shows up and kind of gives um, Barr's backstory and the kind of the four types mm-hmm. of, of people who go into the military. Like that stuff was riveting to me. Like the whole idea mm-hmm. of – and it actually like is probably the only moment in the movie that like made me kind of sit back and think you know, deeply about something. It's the idea of like being behind the scope of a rifle – for years and you start and you get that dissonance you start not seeing people as people but as just these mm-hmm. shapes that go through your scope and i thought that it's was actually part of your training right, right. yeah and it's like you do it over and over and over again and that's why you do it so when you have to pull the trigger you're not going to think oh that's a father with kids or that's a mom on the way to the grocery store or that's that's just a mm-hmm. kid they're innocent you don't think about any of that because they're just shapes that go in front of your scope and i thought that was so well done and and from the beginning you you're actually actually not sure if this guy did it or not which is which is pretty impressive because it seems like you look back on you're like oh well obviously like why would we have this movie if this guy was already guilty (laughs) like what's the point but it does like kind of throw everything into sharp relief in that moment where you're like this is not this is not the best guy (laughs) like this is a guy who has done some terrible things and might do them again you know and and we don't have we don't have the backstory of Jack Reacher kind of saying, like, if you ever do this again, I'm going to come get you at the beginning of the film. We don't really have that. So I like that it's set up in this way that we're kind of like at one on one level, we feel for him because he's been trained kind of into submission. But on the other hand, we're scared of him because he could do this at any time. So I really like that sequence. And it's interesting, too, that he's just in a coma. It's not like he's like, please, I'm innocent. You have to yeah. vindicate me. But he's just like beat up. And you feel for him, too, because he got – at first you think because the police incompetence or just cause that he gets uh, beaten to a pulp and could die. Right. Uh, and I love that when he wakes up, he's like – he assumes he did it. And he just says, like, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, plan was just perfect. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Jai Courtney and Werner Herzog's creepy plan. Yeah. They picked the perfect fall guy. But yeah. they didn't account for Jack Reacher. Well, they didn't yeah. account for Jai Courtney, this idiot, paying for his parking. What are you doing? It's like, <laughs> it's like the only reason that Reacher didn't leave at the beginning. Like, hmm, that's why would you pay for parking if you're going to shoot six people? That that doesn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, it's Jack Courtney. He just he, he can't win no, no matter what. 
Uh, so any other any other favorite scenes you wanted to bring up that we didn't cover? Um, let me see real fast. I like when he um, the brutality of when he loses the knife. He just picks up a rock and brains a dude with a rock. Yeah, he's very resourceful. <laughs> Um, I, I did like, I talked a little bit about it, but all the, well, yeah, I, I ride buses a lot, like a lot, a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't, um, I recently had a, like a medical problem taking a plane and I think I'm going to just avoid, I don't even go on the plane a whole lot anyway, but I was like, oh, for a while. And like when the guy, when he's talking to her, to her, to Rosamund Pike about to get on the bus and the dude is patiently waiting for him. That took me out of the movie. There's no way that dude would have been patient. He'd been like, <laughs> hey, what? Let's go. They do not. They are not nice. I wish they don't have to be. He would not. And then I didn't understand. That totally took me out of it because I just had a really terrible experience with Greyhound where they were really mean. And they kicked us off at the bus at midnight and then at three in the morning. Then it was terrible. But anyway, um, and then where Jack Reacher pulls up in the car and just lets it coast, gets out and goes to this crowd of people who automatically protect him from the cops. It's like, I sort of understand that. But it's also like, for all they know, he's like a terrorist or he's, you know, created like... Why did these? I didn't understand the motivation of the strangers. Because he's Tom Cruise. Because he's Tom Cruise. <laughs> if Tom Cruise jumped into a crowd of people, I'd be like, "Here's my hat. You you can have yeah. it. It's fine. I'm I sure you didn't do anything that, that bad." <laughs> yeah. Weird. See, I liked it and it was entertaining, but in a fairly right. realistic. Even the, a lot of the action in the movie is fairly realistic. Like mm-hmm. not necessarily like you know, you'd see it every things. day, but it could happen. Yeah, it's yeah. not totally implausible. Where to me. Uh, a guy at the bus station being that nice is implausible and this crowd of strangers immediately protecting him. I wish they had set up earlier, like that guy got mugged and Jack Reacher say, or something sure, like that sure. where it made sense yeah. narratively. But I did like that scene a lot. Cause it's so funny. Yeah. That scene makes like, me laugh cops, every time I watch it. Like just all those cops cars going by it. and the guy's like, what? And he's like, I'm Jack Reacher. Don't he's worry like, about okay. it. I got this. Yeah. That- <laughs> Yeah. Which is a, a lot more human, but it's a, like, but if you stop and think about it, it's like, why did that doesn't make any sense? Yep. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, of, I think a lot about buses. Yes. <laughs> Very focused on buses. It's, it's good. Uh, so uh, let's talk about the theme really quick. So of course. Um, we are talking about um, Lawrence Kohlberg's stages of moral development, which are really famous, have been around forever, and these kind of uh, kind of like six stages going on. So I gave you this information before, and what I, I think I really wanted to talk about, I mean, we could talk about Werner Herzog, although I'm not sure he has any morality in this movie at all. He's just like yeah, this so, force of darkness. Like- uh, but especially, <laughs> I think the thing that interests me is the discussion between Tom Cruise's character and Rosamund Pike's character, especially at the end when he he, you know, just cold bloodedly kills Werner Herzog. And she's kind of like, what? Like we have, we have things to do. Like you can't, what about, what about the case? What about what's right? And for him, he's like, I just did what was right. Mm-hmm. Problem solved. So where do you think, <laughs> if you look at the stages, where do you think they fall? Man, I don't, where were you thinking they fell? Well, I think, um, I think actually Jack Reacher is kind of, uh, he's hard to gauge because I would say he's at like stage six, like these kind of universal it's principles. It's post-conventional, yeah. Right, not, like, it's, like it's not about the laws. It's not about what other people say is right. It's what he knows, like it's his moral obligation. Um, mm-hmm. And even him coming back to this case is all about moral obligation. It's all about like he did this terrible thing before and I told him if he stepped a foot out of line, I would be back and I'm back to kind of solve this problem. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree too. Um, I, I yeah, I think part of what clouded it for me is that I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that he did, but it's very right. much from with his own 
he's not at all. I mean, he likes Rosamund Pike, but that's not his motivation. His motivation is right. there is a, there is a truth here, and I have to get to it no matter what my means are. And I don't really care if people get in my way, then I'm just going to get them out. You know, I'm right. just going to stomp them down. And if even, she had gotten in his way, I'm sure, I'm sure he would have been, right. you know, got, he would have taken care of her. Right. <laughs> Not and necessarily he, beat her up. But. And even saving her was all about this kind of moral obligation. It's all about like, she didn't do anything to deserve this. So I have to make this right. Like it's not about it's not necess- I mean, some of it's about her and their bond to one another, but a lot of it is just like you've crossed the line, and I and that's mm-hmm. not okay with me. And you know that's 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 my moral obligation to take care of this. Uh, but what about her? Where do you think she lies? The first thing that jumps to mind for me is this kind of um, stage four, this authority and social order, obedience driven. Because for her, it's all about mm-hmm. the law. It's all about what she has been taught is right. Especially you throw in the fact that you know her her father is also a lawyer. Like so, this has been kind of hammered into her probably her whole life about how important kind of law and order is. Well, to me, she's but I mean, she's in direct opposition to her father. Her father mm-hmm. is like, well, by the word of the law, these people deserve to die, and she's like, no, they don't. So I think maybe she's mm. more t- somewhere between like I think I read something about like stage four and a half or whatever, like mm. sort of pushing past like this is what everyone tells me. This is what I've been raised in. Dad, what you're doing is wrong and you need to know that what you're doing is wrong. And I'm going to push for this no matter what, even if you're upset or, you know, even putting her own life in danger. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. In different ways. And I think it's interesting when you talk about um, these kind of stages of moral development because you can you can kind of pick any character and kind of figure out where they would be. Like even uh, we keep bringing him up, but even Jai Courtney, we can we can talk about where he's at. I mean, he's definitely <laughs> he's a little earlier on. Yeah, a little bit. I think he's probably at like stage two, which is all about self interest, yeah. like what's in it for me. And I think any movie where you're going to have you know stereotypical criminals, they're usually going to follow. They're going to fall in that line. For sure. Like mm-hmm. that's where their stage is going to be. But the person who's interesting to me is kind of the dirty cop and where he falls. And I think depending on when you pick up with that character, I think it changes. There's definitely a lot of self-interest going on uh, at the point we're at in the movie. But I think if we if we picked him up earlier, like we might see like this kind of authority and kind of social order like stage four showing up. So he's a little bit tougher, I think. I think it's – you know, it's one thing to talk about where they are, but it's another thing you have to put into context of where they are in their lives, right? Like if mm-hmm. if all this had gone well and he had, you know, got what he needed to out of this and moved on, we might not say later on it's all about self-interest. You know, his life might be, you know, 99% of the time might be about law and order and the social order aspect. So it's – I don't think there's any like necessarily one correct answer, but we're taking this kind of – this snapshot of these people in this time, and this is where they're at mm-hmm. morally. Um, does anything else stand out to you as far as the stages of moral development here? Well, for the the cop, doesn't he say, like, they're in the trailer, and Jack Reacher says, or someone says something to him, and he's like, I didn't have a choice. Doesn't mm. he say that? And I don't, know, I don't yeah. know if he's justifying it, but we don't really know, like, if they threaten his family, right. or if Werner Herzog says some creepy stuff. Or, or if that, cause that, <laughs> almost that's guaranteed that that happened. <laughs> but it, that kind of made me with the stuff that Bernard Herzog mm. said. I felt like there was something larger in scope, or something not like not necessarily supernatural, but like mystical or something weird going on that was just immediately never touched by. It wasn't like he doesn't just say like they would have killed me or well they offered me a lot of money. He just says I didn't have a chance. Like what does that mean? Right. That's just, and so we don't that's really know. Like if they had his entire family kidnapped, I wouldn't necessarily call that 
you know, I mean, it's a kind of self-interest, but it's, but really it's also, it's also this universal kind of moral principle of like, I need mm. to protect my family. Right. So I do what I have to do. My family's life is more valuable than Jack Reacher's life, which is fair. Or than my own. Yeah. Like this idea that if I don't do what he says, he's going to kill me and I'm never going to see my family again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of there's a lot of variables going on there for sure. Uh, And because Mm -hmm. it is Jack Reacher and it's not, you know, dirty cop, the true story, we don't get to see kind of the background. But it would be really interesting to see, like, I did find that interesting that we never really get an explanation either of why he's doing this or of Werner Herzog's crazy. Like we get a little (laughs) bit of his backstory other than like ate his own fingers off. Like what? Yeah. It's sort of outside of morality. And it made me think a lot. I mean, obviously I've been obsessed with this lately, but the show Hannibal, the character of mm-hmm. Hannibal is motivated by just wanting to see what will happen. Mm-hmm. Not that he's like a real person, but it's not, it's not necessarily even self-interest. He'll do stuff. He'll get put in jail. He'll do. It's just like, if I push this person, will they kill people? What will they do this? Which is, it's like sort of outside of any kind of scope of, to me, like established. Moral. And what we're not hearing is just saying, we, he doesn't really say enough because he, I don't feel like he's doing it for the money. No. Uh, is like then, then what is he doing it for? And we never find out. Yeah, which is part of, and, and it doesn't really necessarily feel like in a really mysterious like way or intentional way. It's just sort of like ah, eh, he just says some weird stuff and then he gets popped. Right. Yeah. But no one better at saying weird stuff than Werner Herzog. Perfectly cast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right. Um. Uh, so that's it for the movie. So the last thing to talk about is whether or not we're excited for Jack Reacher two. Or I guess it's called uh, Jack Reacher Never Go Back, I think. I think it's the title of it. Uh, Whatever that means. It seems like a terrible title. But uh, I'm sure you're not surprised to know that I am excited about this movie because I really (laughs) enjoyed the first one. But the one caveat is that Christopher McQuarrie is not directing this. Uh, we have a new oh. director, and this is directed by Edward Zwick, who I'm not a huge fan of. He did, like, uh, The Last Samurai and Glory and Blood Diamond. So it seems like a really weird choice. Not only, like, is it a thing where I'm, like, not a big fan of his work, but, like, him with this property seems really strange. Like, I don't know how this happened. Like, what Mad Libs creator came up with these. <laughs> let's let's pair these things together. But uh, I also really like Kobe Smulders, uh, and she and she's, like, the, the main female role in this movie, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and I just think, you know, Tom Cruise, I'm in one of those phases where I, I really enjoy Tom Cruise again, so... I will be there uh, for opening weekend. What are, what are your thoughts on Jack Reacher Never Go Back? I will probably wait just a little bit for critical response before mm-hmm. I would pay money to see it. Sure. Especially like if, because like you said, I like movies where something weird is done. And it, this movie was worth watching to me in part. Part of the reason I'll remember this movie is because of Werner Herzog's really strange villain. Yes. Like really out, you know, uh, and I have no, like, and if it's just, uh, if it had just been corrupt cops, like how boring, right? you know, or just like, it, uh, mercenary guys or just people who want money I think it's a lot more interesting so it would just depend on not that I would want like the whole plot spoiled but I want to see it's like oh what was the movie I think it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Michael Shannon is the villain and it's something about biking I haven't watched it oh but yeah went, Premium their, Rush was, yeah yeah Premium Rush it was pan but it was like Michael Vill- Michael Shannon plays an over the top like gangster and I was like I want to see that I would watch that there. just for that yeah Absolutely. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I would wait and see about uh, versus like if it get, you know, people are like, oh, it's like a normal action. And I'm like, I'm not going to watch that. All so, I want from this movie, again, all I want from this movie is a uh, a flashback to Werner Herzog's character. Like if, if that's in there, <laughs> yeah. like I would be there. Uh, or, so, or something night. equally, equally weird and interesting to counter because I think it's a fun counterpoint to a it's like talking again about Die Hard, the very American detective versus the very flamboyant uh, right. European 
Uh, it's like just having it rather than some guy who wants money, which is so boring. Right. Yeah. And we've seen a thousand times before. Yeah. All right. Um, so before you go, why don't you tell people how they can find you online? Awesome. Um, I'm on Twitter at Plenty of Alcoves as my uh, personal account, Struchi Movies, S-T-R-U-C-C-I. Also at Twitter, uh, if you go on YouTube, you type in Struchi Movies or say you want to be a film nerd, you'll find me also at Movies.com. I'm pretty easy to find. Alright everybody, thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you want to connect with the show, you can do that through all sorts of social media, especially Twitter. Find me at PC Case Study. You can also hear other great movie podcasts like War Machine vs. Warhorse and Hydrate Level 4 at followingfilms.com. But if you want to go the extra mile to help me out, go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate to the show on a per-episode basis and even get some great rewards. All right, so next time you hear from me, I will be doing a review of Jack Reacher, Never Go Back. Until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Can you imagine, like, Nicolas Cage in this movie? <laughs> uh, I, I just did, and it just got <laughs> amazing. <laughs> like, not good I, in any way, but wow. I would, maybe yeah. I Oh, God, it's Nicolas Cage versus Brad Hitchcock. <laughs> or Nicolas Cage versus Jai Courtney. Oh, God. It's like That'd overacting really and underacting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>